Hello, I'm Tony. I'm Claire. And this is PodMed Trending. Before we get into the episode this week, I just want to give some potential ways that people could help, as listeners probably are well aware, because it's been like a month and a half now. The Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, and in South Dakota, at least, there was a trigger law that went into place that now made abortion, except in certain circumstances, illegal, um, which obviously impacts the health and care of reproductive uh, patients in the state. Um, so there, here are just some a few like sources that you could either support or find more information about in order to help patients or uh, give to other people you might know who might need this assistance. GenSD, that's J-E-N-S-D dot org is a good source for uh, the entire state of South Dakota. For people who need access to travel outside the state, some options include the Midwest Access Coalition. This is a group out in Chicago who helps bring people from out of the state of Illinois into Chicago to provide abortion care access. Uh, there's also cobaltadvocates.org, uh, which is a, a similar thing, uh, though in Colorado. So for those of you in the west side of the state, that might be easier to access and provide information to patients about. Um, there's also a really great organization uh, down in Texas, I believe is where they're located, called the D Digital Defense Fund. Uh, that'll be digitaldefensefund.org. Uh, they provide training and computer uh, protection for people who are trying to protect patients in their own privacy to access abortion care information. Um, there's also other sources that you could look into to access abortion care as well, including aid access. And then for medical individuals who are looking to increase their training in uh, abortion care and reproductive health care. Um, there's the Medical Students for Choice, uh, which does provide some training, as well as some other uh, uh, training facilities, including uh, RHAP, the Reproductive Health Access Plan. And a quick shout out to just uh, some people who provided this information so we could share it. Um, that'll be my friend Polly, who is a, a member of the Department of Public Health up in New York, and also my friend Amanda, who works down for a Digital Defense Fund. So, well, thank you, Tony, Polly, and Amanda. Yeah. So, in other news, a complete 180 turn for the rest of this episode. I'm we're afraid. Be, <laughs> yes, we're going to be covering two articles that actually have nothing to do with abortion care and instead have everything to do with penises. <laughs> so I do apologize for just the frank amount of times I'm going to either use the word erection or ejaculation in these next couple of like 10, 15, 20 minutes. So this is not an episode to listen to aloud in a public place? Definitely not. And if you are a little uncomfortable with listening to these things, including one real brief mention of the word masturbation other than this one time then you can totally skip this episode no shame in that so we're going to be covering two articles both of them fairly short the first one is called uh, men's feminist identification and reported use of prescription erectile dysfunction medication um, this is a paper out of canada published in the journal of sex research and it was authored by tony silva and tina fetner it was actually a, kind of a simple question that this paper was trying to answer. They mm -hmm. utilized uh, self-reporting data from okay. uh, Canada's, oh, hold on, 2018 Sex in Canada survey, which is pretty self-explanatory. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they collected uh, data from 
1,015 cisgender men who self-reported on this survey, and they wanted to examine the association between feminist identification or men who identify as feminist mm -hmm. and the reported use of erectile dysfunction medication. <laughs> May I ask why? <laughs> uh, for a couple of reasons. One, because it's never been done before, which well. isn't that why all research is done. Um, and I think the other part of it was, I don't think, as opposed to a lot of our other articles, uh, this article is not uh, funded or came from a department within public health or in uh, medicine or, or a science department. It came from the Department of Sociology. Ah. And so they're really interested in looking at this relationship between how men perceive themselves and how they might report their own sexual reproductive health. So is part of the data not just use, but reported use yes. of erectile dysfunction medication? Yes, so it's they had no way to confirm if the men who claimed that they didn't use ED medication actually ED meaning erectile dysfunction uh, medication were not prescribed it or not. Uh, it also, based on the phrasing of the questions in the survey, it asked if you had used this kind of medication in your most previous sexual encounter. And mm -hmm. so it could be a little bit misleading because based on the number of reports who self-report using it, it could be underestimating the total people who actually need erectile dysfunction medication or actually use it because they just might not have used it in their most previous sexual encounter. They also went into some pretty extensive detail about some hypotheses that they had with the relationship. Yeah. They assumed that men who identified as feminists would more readily admit or explain that they had utilized erectile dysfunction medication uh, than non-feminist identifying men because there is some reported cases that mm. men who identify as feminists, and I think it's important that they also try to distinguish between men who identify as feminists yeah. and also understand what feminism is, are reportedly, according to a few surveys, but again, it's there's surveys, there's not any right. like, no experimental rigorous, data. yeah, there's no rigorous data behind this, but they do claim that they are more supportive lovers, so to say. <laughs> Men in other surveys well, well, well. <laughs> uh, published uh, primarily in 2021 from the same person who was the, the lead author on this, Tina Fetner, uh, reported that- I keep thinking you're gonna say Tina Fey. <laughs> yeah, yeah <laughs> I know, right? Sorry, <laughs> um, continue. Uh, she also uh, headed a report using similar surveys showing that men who identified as feminists were also more likely to perform oral sex on their partners as well as uh, non-vaginal stimulation. Hmm. Um, so an interesting dichotomy that they tried to investigate here. Hmm. And one of the other reasons they wanted to investigate it is this perception of masculinity versus unmasculinity. Someone who, like, because they're um, insecure about if you have erectile dysfunction, you're less of a man. Exactly. And there actually was some interesting uh, comments from the survey, uh, especially from the men who identified as being feminists, where they reported that they felt in certain social situations as being removed from society because of their failure to live up to expectations of uh, the masculinity like persona that a lot of society has pushed onto men. Not to make this be like a whoa men uh, podcast episode, but... <laughs> It is a thing that does exist in society where there are certain, much like for women, and arguably much so, much more so for women than for men, this perception of how one is supposed to behave. 
Yeah. And in certain situations, in certain societal situations especially, uh, men who are viewed as unmasculine or feminine feel like they also have to argue why they need to like, behave in a certain way in order to be perceived still as a man as opposed to as a non-male uh, Gender roles are so exhausting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, the last thing I want to touch on before we just get into the results, because yes. the results are very brief, because okay. it's really just one okay. question, okay. Um, is they wanted to make a distinction between the medicinal need for erectile dysfunction medication mm. and the uh, <laughs> kind of just the use of it for sexual gratification and fulfillment. Okay. So there are men who suffer from erectile dysfunction with a medical condition. These drugs are designed, in one case at least accidentally designed, yeah. <laughs> uh, to support male reproductive health through helping them get boners. Um, medical terms, don't <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> erections. Um, however, there's also, in certain situations, men might utilize erectile dysfunction medication to sustain erections longer than is physiologically normal for them, even though they have normal reproductive health. And the reason for that could be a multitude of things. It could be because of how they engage with sex themselves and how they find gratification in it, as well as a whole just multitude of things that we don't need to get into. There's also certain um, sexual identities that are more likely to use ED medication hmm. outside of the uh, medical need, um, hmm. and I don't want to stereotype it, but according to the survey, those who identify as bisexual or homosexual are more likely to use it outside of uh, medical need than those who are medically prescribed it to treat erectile dysfunction. And these are generally younger men. The last thing I want to mention before we get into it, and I think this actually kind of skews the results of the, the study just a tad, but hmm not exceptionally, is that they do make a distinction between pharmacological erectile dysfunction medication and off-label herbal and non-medical supplements as a way to like increase sexual performance. Okay, do what about penises, uh, like a penis pump? Yes, um, they do not include that as erectile dysfunction medication based on my understanding. Um, they did not get into that specifically, but well, let me see if I could get to the... They describe it as a dependent variable, which in this case is reported having using erectile dysfunction medication. And the yes answer is I was using prescription medications such mm -hmm. as Viagra, Cialis, or Levitra. So my understanding is that it was looking much more at the medical side of thing and not as the mechanical side of it. Uh, <laughs> anyways... The results, the gist of the study was basically that men who identified as feminists were more likely to state that they had been prescribed and had used erectile dysfunction medication in their most recent sexual um, interaction. And that was actually a pretty significant standard. It was actually a p-value of <laughs> less than 0. 0.0004. Um, and I don't, I don't want to undermine these results, but there is obviously a lot of sociolo uh, sociological like reasons mm -hmm. that this reporting might, might have turned out this way. Mm -hmm. And again, they touched on it for a variety of reasons in the paper, due to men who like, don't identify as feminists, who identify them as more what you might call classical masculinity or historically masculine individuals, <laughs> um, might feel that admitting that they had difficulty with uh, their sexual health might reflect neg negatively 
upon them as men. Uh, men who identified as feminists said that they did not feel quite as much burden, um, and part of that was because of their identification as being feminist, they wanted to overcome some obstacles that they put onto themselves um, mm. due to that ident own identity uh, to make it seem that they were more sexually successful compared to non-feminist men. So maybe. there's a whole dichotomy here that's just... And maybe they say this too, but maybe the non-feminist men are so insecure that they do need ED medication prescriptions, but they're so uncomfortable with discussing that or even like admitting that out loud that they don't seek that help yes and what was interesting is that in this paper the question was literally like do you use this or do you not use this and it had no reflection upon whether the medical condition was caused by a physiological um, problem or a psychosomatic problem mm -hmm. which as anyone <laughs> who has gone through medical school would know those are treated initially very similar ways but one is curative or can be uh, reversed and the other one cannot. So mm -hmm. if you have physiological uh, difficulties with getting an erection, um, that is kind of a no way back situation. <laughs> but if it's psychosomatic due to trauma or stress or anxiety, those are something that you could address from a uh, psychological or mm -hmm. a even uh, psychiatric aspect. But yes, so some of the results, men who identify as feminists are more likely in fact to report use of erectile dysfunction medication so that's that's the gist of it okay i had the funny thought when i was reading it that i was like oh i wonder if you could just then just go through patient charts and find out who's probably a feminist just by <laughs> ed prescription and actually is refilling it but that seems a uh, like an invasion of privacy and also be completely useless <laughs> now we know now we know the next paper also oddly very penile focused <laughs> is a really short article from 2000 called Five Meters of H2O, the pressure at the urinary bladder neck during human ejaculation. <laughs> so if you're still listening, this will in fact be the part where I start using the word ejaculation like every other sentence. So if you're interested, it's a great drinking game. <laughs> so the reason for this article, it's incredibly short. It only had five participants, which why I'm surprised they get more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was surprised they got that many. Um, the idea behind it was that if anyone is familiar with the field of urology, you know that retrograde flow of urine could be a huge problem. And there's actually a lot of studies uh, in the ureters studying how urine is supposed to only flow in one direction. It's a whole pressure gradient system and and contractile uh, smooth muscle and all this nonsense. And by nonsense, I mean really important to protect you from urinary infections. But there actually has never been a similar uh, physiological study done on men investigating whether or not there's a similar pressure gradient to protect from retrograde ejaculatory flow. <laughs> <laughs> now why has this not been done? <laughs> well. Because the, the simpler reason is, is that in order to collect these pressure readings, they had to insert a catheter, uh, a balloon catheter, mm. uh, up a penis, and then uh, inflate the balloon at, in, within the bladder okay. uh, to make sure it didn't accidentally get dislodged. Yikes. <laughs> and then uh, read pressure measurements while the participants underwent masturbation. <laughs> um, so... 
a really simple setup. You had five participants. I'll show you the diagram of this balloon catheter in a second, um, but I'm gonna describe it for the listeners first. Um, the balloon set up the opening of the urethra uh, in, within the bladder. Mm -hmm. It ran all the way, obviously, to the end of the penis, because otherwise, how would they remove it? <laughs> <laughs> and they had uh, eight pairs of uh, channel openings along the catheter starting uh, five millimeters below the balloon. And so you had uh, zero millimeters, that's where the balloon would inflate, and then five millimeters uh, distally to that, so towards the tip of the peen. Um, I don't know why I said it like that. <laughs> uh, towards the medical Towards the tip of the penis, um, there would be two uh, pressure gates every five millimeters and there'll be one on either side what do the pressure gates do just measure or yes okay. it's, it's basically just measures um uh, pressure based on um millimeters of uh water i believe is what they filled it with i mean i don't know what else they would fill it mercury <laughs> <laughs> yeah god i hope not and so this extended from five millimeters after past the balloon to 40 millimeters past the balloon and again i a pressure gate every five millimeters on bilaterally on, on both sides. What were the sides? It was to make sure that there was a symmetric pressure readings. Okay. Because as you might know, prostates are not perfectly symmetrical. I mean, they should be, but all people are different. Um, and so they wanted to see if there might be some kind of um, anatomical localization mm -hmm. you know, organization of this pressure based on lateral sides. So extended from the opening of the bladder to the external sphincter in the urethral canal. Um, so basically it went from the beginning of the bladder to just past that sphincter. And it was a really short recording, <laughs> which is not surprising. Um, it was only 30 seconds long uh, after ejaculation occurred. So they would be measuring the pressure gradient the entire time that people were masturbating with a catheter with a yeah you see here's the thing i was thinking about this the whole time i was reading this and i was like with nope no part of this sounds like comfortable like hey you have a catheter in your penis you're trying to ejaculate in and front masturbate. of someone and there's also there's also an observer or like sure. cameras i don't know yeah there was an observer to ensure that no medical emergency took place <laughs> and there's i mean Okay, <laughs> so they recorded it. They did make note that, uh, oh, here it is. I, I, here, I could just answer this question about what the, the catheter was infused with. So it was perfused with 0.9% uh, saline and degasified uh, chlorhexidine. So for sterility and... And just measuring, yeah, so, uh, to maintain pressure of uh, 20 kilopascals. Um, within the within the tube. I, you know, kilopascals means nothing to me. <laughs> yes, so they had five healthy, obviously male, cis male uh, uh, volunteers. The median age was 33. Um, they ranged from like 27 to 39, I believe. And they all were healthy, sexually active men who had normal, quote unquote, self-reported ejaculatory experiences. <laughs> so, any, uh, any feminists <laughs> in the crowd? <laughs> yeah. What was absolutely unsurprising is that they did see a pressure gradient. So the uh, pressure gates at closest to the bladder recorded the highest pressures after successful ejaculation. And then the pressure gates closer to the external sphincter recorded lower pressure measurements, indicating that even if 
like ejaculation occurred, there'd be no successful way for it to retrogradely flow back in, mm-hmm. uh, through the prostatic gland. What was really interesting though, and really the only interesting thing about this study, <laughs> other than how uncomfortable it made me to, to look at the one diagram Taking on one that, for the team. Um, was that they did note that the timing of these pressures was actually pretty interesting. So hmm. closer to the, uh, what they call like the bladder neck, which would be like within the prostate, like surrounded mm-hmm. by the prostate gland, mm-hmm. you had the highest pressure readings and it extended for about 30 seconds. Meanwhile, as you got more distally down the bladder neck towards the external sphincter of the urethra, you recorded uh, lower pressure volumes and they spiked and then receded very rapidly. And then what we would have huh. at the tail end of that were these uh-huh. small spike readings of pressure increases that extended from that short duration of high pressure towards the end of that 30 second demarcation from the higher pressure readings at the bladder neck. So basically, if you're trying to visualize this, by the bladder, high pressure extend, uh, sustained for a long time mm-hmm. towards the tip of the penis, one uh, spike of high pressure that is less than at the, uh, the head of the bladder that tapers off very rapidly, but then you have small spikes to help release everything, essentially. Okay. I mean, that makes sense that there'd be physiologic mechanisms to A, prevent anything from getting back up yes um or (laughs) stuck yeah they did note as well that there are some inter uh, participant differences Um, but the trends remain the same that the highest pressure would be at the bladder neck and then those pressures would decrease as you extended towards the tip of the penis obviously the difference here is just because anatomically people are slightly different my guess is that the slightly different pressure readings was actually just a result of the placement of the catheter not being identical between participants and their anatomical structures being slightly different in terms of their size and, and, and distances, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yep. So that's really it. Could you read the name of the, the, the title of the article again? Yeah, it's a weird title. It's uh, five meters of H2O, the pressure at the urinary bladder neck during human ejaculation. You see, why did I, you said that, and I was like, they're going to be underwater. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I also don't know why they would say five meters of H2O. I wonder, part of me does wonder, uh, this group of researchers, I I didn't mention this, but it's from the Department of Urology at University of Bern in Switzerland. So I'm wondering if there might have been a translational error because Mm. you don't really measure pressure in meters of H2O, (laughs) especially not in in physiological, like... Yeah. But that's beside the point. Okay. The gist of this paper basically is is that as as semen is expelled from uh, the vasa differentia, which would be the plural form of vas differens. Didn't know there was a... <laughs> I didn't either. Plural. Um, but I guess that makes sense. Uh, and you extend through the urethra towards the external opening of the penis. You do have a very significant and sustained pressure gradient to help make it impossible for retrograde uh, seminal fluid flow. That's really the gist of it. A short and sweet paper. And now I will show you the little diagram that they, okay. <laughs> that they had. <laughs> All right. <laughs> yeah. It is what it is. <laughs> so yeah, that's really it for this episode. Um, thank you all for listening to me say the word ejaculation and penis in urethra way too many times. Thanks for uh, getting <laughs> one more count in for all those words. You're welcome. 